Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Ayers LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, College Courses Teach Young Adults How to Make Small Talk by Tara Weiss. Austin Hufford wrote an article, Why Efficient Washers Take Forever to Run. Then we have, Does Working with Robots Make Humans Slack Off by Susan Pinker. Josh Zumram wrote an article, You're Likely Falling for Fake Reviews, and we'll follow that up with one by Bob Brody, Thank Your Teachers Before It's Too Late. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, College Courses Teach Young Adults How to Make Small Talk. Jana Matthews, a professor of medieval literature at Rollins College, checks the bathrooms to coax out students hiding from the big event in her job market boot camp class, a mixer with alumni to practice professional networking. For many of her students, the face-to-face conversations with strangers are more nerve-wracking than decoding Chaucer. Sidney Parment had trouble sleeping the night before and considered skipping it. I kept overthinking what I was going to say and second-guessed whether I should say anything, said Parment, who graduated in May from the Winter Park, Florida campus. Matthews recommends students try swiping deodorant on palms to avoid clammy handshakes. Those who vomit from nerves should pop a breath mint. If the question, tell me about yourself, triggers temporary amnesia, consult your prepared script, she says. Students practice moving from introductions to asking about the other person to giving their elevator pitch that covers their interest, work experience, and skills. Parmet said she was awkward when she entered the room until another student pulled her into a conversation and she explained her dream of finding a job for a nonprofit. She now works for a group that aids homeless families and those at risk for becoming homeless. Everybody seems to have a theory about why many young adults have trouble with so-called soft skills, which include the art of persuasion and civil conversation. Blame smartphone addiction, COVID cocooning, or helicopter parenting. Regardless of cause, a growing number of college professors in various disciplines around the United States are trying to keep professional chit-chat from becoming a lost language. Claire Ralph, a Caltech computer science lecturer, said that when she started at the campus in 2016, she was surprised that a fifth of her students had spent five months looking for a job, not even getting interviews. She asked to see copies of their cover letters. One began, hey, what's up, y'all? The student explained that someone said a cover letter should be friendly, Ralph recalled. She talked about students' communication shortcomings with colleagues. Everyone came to the same conclusion. It was a hole people knew existed, she said, but didn't know how to plug. 
employers see it even if students don't. When college seniors were asked to rate their communication, nearly 80% responded very exceptionally, extremely proficient. Only 54% of employers agreed, according to surveys by the National Association of Colleges and Employers. Matthews said she understood why many of her students weren't getting hired for jobs, saying they offered no evidence that they had the interpersonal or communication skills to succeed at them. That prompted her to initiate the job market boot camp and similar exercises to help students unmute. When teaching the Canterbury Tales, Matthew holds a mixer where students pose as characters from the book while delivering an elevator pitch. Students learn the book, she said, and ease into networking in a way that's not so personalized so they don't feel like they're on display. At Caltech, Ralph created TechFest, a networking event with alumni and Dining with Teach, which pairs students and professionals for a simulated business lunch at a campus restaurant. In one class, she invites people in computer science to talk about their jobs and chat with students. It seems to be working, she said. Seniors seeking jobs after graduation are now all getting offers. Rachel Tour, a creative writing professor at Eastern Washington University in Cheney, Washington, asked students as an exercise to write a cover letter explaining why she should accept them into her class. The assignment, she said, revealed another problem, a painfully self-absorbed point of view. Among her examples, I want to take this class because I am a poet and need to get a class out of my genre. I am a good writer and have done well in my creative writing courses. Another. I am a great applicant and this will get me what I want. She asked for a volunteer to share their letter with the class, which further stirred her despair. Since the students seemed to all write in similar fashion, most had no criticisms. A cover letter, she told the class, was supposed to make people fall in love with you. In the job market, that means explaining how the company will benefit, she said, not the applicant. David S. Salisbury does much of his academic research in remote parts of the Amazon, where he lives among indigenous people and communicates in Spanish and Portuguese with tribe members who know the languages. He faces bigger hurdles on campus. Students' interpersonal skills are not as sharp as they used to be, said Salisbury, a professor of geography, environment, and sustainability at the University of Richmond in Richmond, Virginia. Salisbury stops class when a student doesn't refer to a peer by name. If a student says, I really enjoyed Brian's idea, but I think this might be something to add, I say, I love how you mentioned Brian's name, he said. Last year, he joined students and alumni at a cocktail party ahead of a conference aimed at helping students network with younger professionals. At the event, he helped introduce shy students to alumni. Some of us were freaking out because we didn't know how to respond, said Jeff Tsai, a sophomore biology major. He supported me in striking up a conversation. And now, why efficient washers take forever to run. 
For months, Donna King experimented with the various settings of her washing machine, trying to get her clothes to stop coming out covered in detergent residue. In the era of tightening water and energy standards, King thinks the machine just doesn't use enough water with clothes emerging nearly dry to the touch. She regularly runs her t-shirts through the machine a second time. The hairstylist in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, sometimes brings laundry loads into work to use the heavy-duty setup there. I'm all for saving the environment, but this ain't the way to do it. You got to do something two or three times, the 59-year-old said. The standard is great on paper, but when it comes to practical and real-life situations, it's a bunch of S. King hacked her machine with a water pitcher. She now adds seven or more pitchers filled with water to the machine, both at the start and midway through the cycle. That extra water tricks the machine into thinking there is a bigger load, so the washer adds even more water. King says her clothes now come out cleaner. There is nothing convenient about any of it, she said. Other consumers are also MacGyvering workarounds for their modern home appliances as plant and current regulations make it harder and slower to wash pots, clean pants, and boil pasta. The Biden administration has proposed tightening federal water and energy use standards further for numerous home appliances, including refrigerators and ovens, in an effort to combat climate change and save consumers money. Under a proposed rule, dishwashers would be allowed to use around 3.2 gallons of water a cycle, down from 5 gallons currently. Appliance makers and environmental groups have put forward a joint proposal for less stringent efficiency increases. The public has posted hundreds of comments in support or opposition to efficiency rules on a government-run regulation site including one person who sent in a photo of his dirty spoons. The rules, which are required by law to be periodically reviewed, make some appliances significantly slower. It takes water plus time to equal a clean product, said Christian Karasek, the general manager of an upstate New York retailer, Morehouse Appliances. If we are going to use less water, it's going to greatly lengthen the time of the cycle. The average standard cycle time for a dishwasher has increased from around 70 minutes in 1983 to 160 minutes this year, according to research by the Competitive Enterprise Institute, a libertarian think tank that opposes the efficiency rules. Elderly customers who replace old appliances with new ones regularly call and complain about their slowness said Donna Goodrich, the owner of furniture and appliance seller Top Furniture. Her New Hampshire-based customers say things like, mine didn't run like that before and there is something wrong with it. It ran too long, she said. Goodrich has to explain that the speed is normal and it's part of the way machines are now more efficient. Manufacturers have been coming up with new features to meet the requirements. Some dishwashers automatically open at the end of the cycle to allow dishes to air dry. Some Bosch models use an absorbent mineral compound called zeolith 
to help dry dishes. Many new machines also have quick wash cycles. Frank Schroeder thought his washing machine wasn't doing a good job on his laundry, even compared with the machines he remembered back in Europe, where he's from. The dental technician in Southern California started playing with different settings and used a bucket to add water after the initial rinse. He also started doing research on appliance forums and YouTube. He eventually made a key discovery. The amount of water his machine used could be adjusted through a hidden switch inside the machine. He waited for its warranty to expire and then went in with a screwdriver. About an hour later, his machine was back together and the water level was much higher as he ran a load. He warned you need a soft touch, though. They make this little screw out of a soft plastic, he said. If you're not careful, you could mess up that little screw head. Owen Perkins has been fascinated with home appliances since he was a teenager, often just as annoyed with the oddities of old models as he is now. The 35-year-old owner of Naperville, Illinois repair store Century Central Vacuum saved up money in high school and bought a second clothes dryer for his parents' home because the dryer took double the time to dry as the washer took to wash. More recently, Perkins decided to add a commercial dishwasher to his renovated basement bar that takes about 90 seconds to clean a load of dishes instead of hours. He found the used one on Facebook for $1,000. He had to upgrade home electric lines and plumbing to accommodate the high-powered machine, which has no settings, just an on-off button. Perkins uses his for coffee mugs and classes because it isn't designed to clean dried-on food. That dishwasher comes in very handy for parties, he said. In order to keep them drinking, you've got to have a way of getting fresh glasses all the time. And now, does working with robots make humans slack off? Robots can perform surgery, shampoo someone's hair, read a mammogram, and of course, drive a car. A chat box could probably write my column if I let it. Now that machines can do nearly everything humans do, the question is what effect they have on human motivation. Do they make our lives easier and more efficient, or do they just turn us into slackers? A study recently published in October in the journal Frontiers in Robotics and AI has an answer. A person who works alongside a robot is less likely to focus on details than when he or she works alone. Anyone who has worked in a team knows that one or two people usually carry the load while the others sit back and watch. Researchers call this social loafing. Turns out that people treat robots the same way. A machine whirring in the background seems to induce a lack of human attention to the job. The study was led by Helene Simek of the Technical University of Berlin, who has previously studied social loafing involving human partners. When two pilots are in a cockpit monitoring the dashboard, they each reduce their effort. Airlines require two people because they want to increase safety. They call this the four-eye principle. But we found social loafing, Simek said. For the new study, she and her colleagues recruited 44 volunteers 
to inspect electronic components for manufacturing errors such as bad welds or seams, a task that, in factories, is often performed by humans paired with robots. The volunteers were divided into two groups. One worked alone, while the other was told to double-check components that had already been inspected by a robot named Panda. People in that group were shown Panda, an articulated arm with a visual sensor on the end, on their way into the lab and heard it humming along as they worked. But in fact, there was no robot at work. Both groups were deliberately given a set of components that included the same number of mistakes. So if the two groups were giving the same degree of attention to the task, the results should have been roughly the same. Instead, the researchers found that the humans working alone picked up an average of 4.2 out of 5 errors, while those who thought they were being assisted by a robot detected an average of 3.2, 20% worse. The participants in both groups spent the same amount of time, 90 minutes, and when asked to evaluate their own effort, they gave themselves similar ratings. But the performance of those who work with a robot lagged behind. It's not a huge difference, but if you think about quality control teams where humans and, and AIs work together on medical imaging or aircraft navigation, it's clear that the phenomenon of social loafing could potentially carry a high cost. For instance, Cybeck notes, it's known that in mammogram screening, it makes a difference if a radiologist is checking an image for the first time or double-checking someone else's work. If the person knows it's been checked first, they slack off. This finding doesn't exactly boost my confidence in self-driving cars, even if there's a human at the wheel to take over in an emergency. People take advantage of the support that is offered. They are over-reliant on the system, Cymac said. They look, but do not see. And now, Josh Zumbrums, you're likely falling for fake reviews. If you're a frequent online shopper, you know there are fake reviews on the internet and probably think they don't sway you. I thought so too. Then I spoke to Brent Hollenbeck, a University of California, Los Angeles professor who has studied how we really respond to fake reviews and those little ubiquitous little numbers, 4.5 stars, 4.8 stars, 4.2 stars. Anyone about to hit the digital malls ahead of the holidays would benefit from Hollenbeck findings on how pernicious and ubiquitous review fakery can be. How does one discover fakers? As Hollebeck found, they're hiding in plain sight. More precisely, sellers or their intermediaries publicly solicit fake Amazon reviews on Facebook. They post descriptions of products which they say consumers can have free of charge in exchange for a glowing review from a verified purchaser with photos. The reviewer then buys the product so the review is labeled as coming from a verified purchaser. Once or she, he or she leaves a review, the seller refunds the purchase price and any transaction costs and sometimes offers a bonus of as much as $15 a review, according to Hollenbeck. Sherry He, a professor at Michigan State University, and David Proserpio, a proponent 
a professor at the University of Southern California when the research was written. He is currently on leave working for Amazon. These findings appeared last year in the journal Marketing Science. Although the sellers don't include the links, they often offered enough information, such as the product type and pictures, for researchers to find the exact product and URL for which reviews were solicited. The team documented about 1,500 such items, including beauty products, humidifiers, teeth whiteners, cell phone accessories, and electric foot massagers. The product's average rating jumped from 4.3 stars before solicitation to 4.5 stars after. After the Facebook recruiting ends, the rating gradually falls back to 4.1 stars. That might not sound like a huge amount, but even a 0.2 percentage point increase can dramatically improve how high a product ranks in an Amazon search. While the boost might be short-lived, the increase in the total reviews, sales rank, and search position persists. Though the researchers studied solicitation on Facebook and reviews on Amazon, behavior isn't limited to those websites. In fact, sites where users can leave reviews without being verified purchasers are thought by some researchers to have an even worse fake review problem. The fake reviews appear to work. The Behavioralist, a London-based consulting firm that studies behavioral economics in partnership with which question mark, a British consumer advocacy and information group similar to Consumer Reports in the United States, asked 10,000 customers to select dash cams, headphones, or cordless vacuum cleaners. Some consumers were shown fake reviews and some real reviews. Those who got the fake reviews were 5.8 percentage points more likely to pick products that which recommended against buying. Overall, one additional star increased demand by 38%. In some cases, consumers were responding to the review, in others to the star rating, and sometimes both. Perhaps surprisingly, more frequent online shoppers were likelier to be influenced by fake reviews because they're accustomed to quickly assessing products via things such as rating and number of reviews, said Jesper Atkinson, Behaviouring Managing Director at The Behaviorist. People developed these habits that work most of the time, but sometimes it really deceives them, he said. Hallenbeck conducted his research in 2020, but there's little reason to think the practices have ceased. The UK's Department for Business and Trade estimated this year that 11% to 15% of reviews for many product categories are fake. Regulators are trying to clamp down. The Federal Trade Commission back in June proposed rules banning fake reviews and testimonials. The proposed rules would also prohibit related practices such as company insiders reviewing their own products without disclosing their affiliation, reviews from fake people or have never purchased products, or review hijacking where a company makes reviews for one product appear to apply to another by changing the listings. Last year, Amazon filed a lawsuit against 10,000 Facebook group administrators 
who it said were soliciting fake reviews. But as old groups get closed down, new ones are created. Many of the sellers are overseas and continually use new aliases and sock puppet accounts. Hollenbeck's research finds that Amazon eventually deleted many of the fake reviews, but often with a lag of 100 days. An Amazon spokesperson said the company has zero tolerance for fake reviews and acknowledged that fake review brokers operate outside of our stores, making it more challenging to detect, prevent, and enforce these bad actors alone. The company said it has taken legal action against 152 bad actors and blocked more than 200 million suspected fake reviews in 2022 alone. Facebook periodically deletes the groups and they pop back up again a week later, said Hollenbeck. Indeed, I easily found several Facebook groups advertising free products such as furniture, earphones, and many other items in exchange for reviews. Facebook policies prohibit buying, selling, or trading for fraudulent reviews. The company has filed lawsuits against individuals for e-commerce abuse. Hollenbeck and Atkinson say their research has made them more skeptical shoppers. They offer a few tips. Both make a point to read mediocre reviews that are unlikely to be faked. Hollenberg says one surprising red flag is photos. Fake reviews are more likely to have pictures. After all, who shares a banal photo of some minor consumer good? Hollenbeck says he's cautious about products that are one of four of five nearly identical search results. They're the sort of product that would benefit from a tiny ratings bump that a fake review can deliver. And now, thank your teachers before it's too late. A 1962 Twilight Zone episode starred Donald Pleasance as an elderly prep school teacher forced to retire after 51 years. Despondent, he laments that he made no difference in his students' lives. They all come and go like ghosts. I gave them nothing. I was an abject, dismal failure. Then a bell tolls, summoning him back to his classroom, where he meets the ghost of former students who died heroically and have returned to thank him for teaching them about patriotism, courage, loyalty, ethics, and honesty. He retires in peace. Watching that episode recently, I thought of Bernard F. Dick, a professor who made a difference in my life. One day in 1973, he approached me, smiling broadly, on the campus of Fairleigh Dickinson University in Teaneck, New Jersey. He complimented my latest article for the student newspaper and asked if I had ever studied Latin. He thought I might have because my sentences were concise, almost tight enough to snap. I told him I hadn't. Well, he said, you're a true writer. In 16 years of formal education, I received smatterings of encouragement from teachers, but Mr. Dick was the only one who ever called me qualified for the profession I intended to pursue. But I had never thanked him. I searched online for his email address and learned he had retired from teaching 12 years earlier but was still, in his mid-80s, a professor emeritus 
and a widely published author, most recently of The Golden Age Musicals of Daryl F. Zanuck, The Gentleman Preferred Bonds. I wrote to him, It would be indecent of me to grow another day older without thanking you. I described the incident. It probably took you all of two minutes, but it meant everything to me as an aspiring writer, and to this day it means everything to me still. So please accept my gratitude for whatever modest success I've achieved. He answered the next day, and we've stayed in touch. Once I asked if he'd ever reached out to thank a long-ago teacher. He told me about Sister Marie Gerald, a nun who taught him in seventh grade at the Cathedral School in Scranton, Pennsylvania in 1948-49. She routinely assigned reports on American history. One day, she asked her students for a paper about the Pony Express. She returned his report to him saying, read in class, please. He did. That was my introduction to public speaking, he told me, which later landed me a career. Mr. Dick said that about 20 years ago, I felt it was time to acknowledge a debt. He called St. Joseph's Convent in Scranton to ask about Sister Marie Gerald. Gone, a nun bluntly informed him. She died back in 1998 at 95. I owe a great deal to Sister Marie Gerald, Mr. Dick said. I was too late to tell her that myself. But because she was a woman of faith, I'm certain she knows it. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.